Hello and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, I'm genuinely delighted to have as my guest, Alex McNaughton. Alex is a sales coach and advisor based in New Zealand, and he's got some really fresh and interesting ideas in terms of how to build a team, his approach to developing other people, uh, his approach to selling. And I think you'll find today's conversation invigorating, if nothing else. But also, I want you to get a different perspective, a fresh perspective on what might be possible if you think differently. So, Alex, welcome. Marcus, good to have me on. Thank, thanks for having me. <laughs> I'm sure it is. A good. Love, lovely intro as well. <laughs> we'll. We'll have to let the audience decide whether it's good to have you on, but I suspect it will be based <laughs> on our previous conversations, but no pressure. Okay, so would you mind giving the audience um, maybe 60 to 90 seconds on your history? Sure. So at university, studying finance accounting for some God knows reason, years and years ago, hating life, and I stumbled into a sales role through an internship at a tech startup, and that's where I sort of got the sales bug. And my first few weeks were cold calling. I was given a list, and they said, go speak to construction companies and sell us, sell them their, your, your software, sell them our software. And then from there, so I worked there for about a year and a half, ended up running a team of 15. Um, then when I worked at a couple of big, large US corporates, and I did one more startup. And through that journey, I noticed that the Kiwi companies in particular that I worked for really lacked in terms of how they sold you know, structurally, process-wise, strategy, development into teams, how they're hired, every, like it, they were just really, really far behind. So I thought, hey, let's see what I can do about that, see if we can help, <laughs> help some Kiwi startups. And I started doing some advisory work. That led to more advisory work. And, and, and I started working with bigger, bigger, bigger companies. And so what, were the blind, sorry, what were the blind spots that you've seen along the way then? Because you've worked with large companies and startups. And I'm curious, are there any common blind spots across the board? Definitely. So I've worked across just over 120, nearly 130 companies in the last two and a half years. Okay. And the common blind spots are... HR would never hire you now. Who wouldn't? HR, all that job offer. <laughs> <laughs> no, exactly. So the really common ones, there's a few. One is companies both small and large don't actually understand how to attract and hire salespeople. I think that's probably the first one. They really struggle, firstly, to know what to look for. And then they really struggle in terms of actually bringing those people into the organization and getting them performing quickly. So time to performance is a massive challenge across all companies. Like hiring and onboarding, that's one. Sales process is probably the second one. A lot of organizations don't have particularly good sales process. And quite often, it's not mapped to how their customers actually buy. That's yeah. a big one. You've yeah. probably seen that one many times. And then I think the third one, and, and this is a global problem, is that there's really not a career path into professional selling. Actually, selling isn't really professional, if we're brutally honest. You know, like the same way law or accounting, they, you know, they have professional bodies and you have to do continuing professional development and, you know, the unprofessional. It should be a profession, but it's the unprofessional. That's right. And what does that mean? It means that there's this massive disparity between a good sales professional and a not so good sales professional. And it's a very, very, it's too big a disparity. Like you wouldn't accept it if you had, you know, if you were going to an accountant and they didn't, you know, pass the, didn't have a chartered accountancy, you know, you wouldn't accept that. <laughs> you never work with them. They, they would never actually exist. We take it for granted that there's a level of professionalism in certain professions, but sales doesn't have that. So that's probably the biggest one. That really does get my goat because selling should be the most noble thing that we do. And totally. It's, you know, if you, if you define sales and selling as the facilitation of buying, helping people to make the best possible decision for themselves now and in the future, whether it involves buying from you or not. And th this isn't... Um, about trying to make friends. It's about doing the right thing, especially if you're dealing with complex sales, which may, might be strategic and material to the future of the business. You have absolutely no right whatsoever 
to sell them something that's not fit for purpose. It isn't a case of caveat emptor. It's venditor emptor. Seller beware. I, I agree. And, and I think, you know, I, I think we share a very similar idea of what selling is. It's, you know, I'm going to find out as much as I can about you. And if you've got some problems I can solve, then I'll help you solve them. And if I don't, if I can't help you solve those, I'll point you in the right direction. And sometimes that means actually saying, you know what, maybe you should go speak to these people over here because they're actually better, better suited to help you solve your specific problem. That yeah. is selling in, in its essence. Unfortunately, not everyone has that buying, not everyone has a buying experience like that. And salespeople have, or the sales profession has a bit of a bad name because everyone can relate to a bad buying experience that they've been through. Well, the problem there, again, that really frustrates me is that there's just a, almost a total lack of focus and attention on thinking as the customer. You think about the customer, what you can do to them. And this is where I have a real issue now with a lot of sales training um, because of the emphasis on technique instead of really thinking as the customer and building the technique from the customer out. Because the technique has to be fit for purpose. And I see most people using technique as a, a sword, not a shield. It's not something that helps protect both sides to reach the right decision, to find common ground, to build bridges. It's used as a way to manipulate and force and funnel people into making a decision that favors you. Now, that to me is the antithesis of service. That's self-service. That's self-serving. And uh, as a customer, when a salesperson behaves like that, shows up like that, my defense walls naturally go up. I can't help it. I've got 300 million years of evolutionary hardwiring <laughs> from predators. Look, I think one of the, the simplest ways you can get salespeople performing better is just to instill a natural sense of curiosity, like to actually uh, bring up their natural sense of curiosity. Like human beings are curious creatures. One of the first things we do and we're, we're teaching, you know, young or inexperienced people how to sell. Because that's what we're all about. We, you know, I've got a company called Apprento and, you know, our, our, our mission is every salesperson professionally educated and performing. We create pathways into the profession and then we ramp up the performance of existing sales teams through ongoing education. Wow. And a lot of the folks we're, we're developing are young, you know, they're straight out of uni or maybe they never went to uni. And one of the one of the first things we do is instill a sense of curiosity and teach them how to ask questions. And just by doing that alone, their performance increases. Just by learning how to ask questions and listen, that has a marked improvement on sales performance. Crazy, right? The simplest stuff makes the greatest amount of difference. If you create the conditions where people want to come to work, where they feel valued, where they feel they're opinion matters, where they feel like they're being developed and they have an opportunity to grow, where they feel like their boss, their, uh, their peers have their back. They're not looking for them to fail. They're not finding reasons for things to be different. They're not creating the conditions that are forcing people to act in ways that are that feel unnatural to them. So putting people under pressure in order to make a deal happen, in order to meet a valuation target that serves the interest of financiers and senior leadership, but doesn't serve the interest of the customer, even though you might be bribing them with an 80% discount, it's not right for them. And it feels incongruous for the seller. Why do we have to create these conditions? I don't think it's unreasonable for any salesperson to choose to turn up to a company knowing that their boss has their best interests at heart and is looking for them to thrive and become their best uh, selves, to coach them, for the employer to create a condition, the conditions where they can feel safe at work without feeling threatened, without feeling marginalized, without feeling belittled. These are not unreasonable expectations. So what, why is it that that's described as being entitled and snowflakey? It's a really tough question. And, and I think there's, there's a few reasons. I'll try, let, let me try and unpack it because I've thought about this a lot. 
I think it starts with there not being a with sales not being a profession. I think that's where it starts is because there's no because it's not professional. Anyone gets into it, it's kind of like the wild west. So I think that's kind of where it starts. I think then the second problem is what we do is we promote our top salespeople into sales leadership positions and then give them absolutely no support, guidance, coaching, development, nothing. And we just expect them to know what to do. And then on top of that, then we then then we throw a lot of pressure um, on top of that with sometimes somewhat outrageous targets. And, you know, that kind of pressure cooker environment then creates these bad behaviors, bad outcomes that you mentioned that, you know, ultimately, ultimately lead to less than pleasant buying experiences for the customer. I have a challenge. If you are a salesperson being promoted into management and you've seen the destructive forces at work, when your salespeople are put under enormous pressure to bring deals forward, to close stuff that's premature, to just double down on stupid, you know, make more dials, contact people too frequently, uh, send out more emails, pack out more noise and content. And all of that in the selfish pursuit of a valuation target or hitting a quota as opposed to the customer's best interest. And I think what we really have to do is we've got to start looking at a bigger picture. We need to see sales as part of a continuum. It's not a discrete part of the customer's experience. It's just part of their buying journey, the sale. Marketing is part of the buying journey. The first use is part of the buying journey. Ongoing use is part of the buying journey. And salespeople really do need to get to grips with the fact that the customer does not think about you, your company, your products, or your services. It doesn't give them any thought unless they're not working. If they're not working, that's when you have their attention. But most salespeople are then running for the hills, avoiding the difficult conversations. You should run to the sound of gunfire. You should go looking for hard problems and you should go looking uh, for unhappy customers. But salespeople don't. Why? Fear, probably. And not knowing what they don't know. Mm. You know, I think I think a lot of these problems come down to poor sales enablement and a lack of coaching. Here's the traditional attitude towards developing sales salespeople. It's, oh, we've got our annual training budget. Let's just throw on a three-day sales workshop. That's us for 2022. Tick the box, that, all done. Yeah, tick, exactly. Tick the box, they're trained. The problem with that <laughs> is maybe 3 to three to 10% of that training will be remembered in the next six months. And by another six months later, it's completely forgotten. So it just doesn't work. But then we're putting an enormous amount of pressure on sales professionals because they're the people who ultimately keep the lights on. They're the ones who are bringing in the business. They're bringing in the customers. I've just thought so, of so, a wonderful analogy. If any of you are parents of teenage children, let me put it this way. Would you be comfortable letting your teenage child, maybe 15, 16 years old, because let's face it, most of your sales team haven't evolved beyond that age. Would you let them uh, be happy giving them three days of you know, classroom training on driving? and then letting them loose on the roads. I really it's, hope not. That's pretty much the equivalent of what you're doing with salespeople at the moment. That's right. I mean, and, and what we found is, you know, all, all of our coaching is 12 months. It's, on, it's, it's actually, you know, it starts at 12 months. It's ongoing. And it's amazing the results that we've seen when we take green people who have zero experience and, and we assess everyone using a piece of technology through our software partner to assess their kind of inherent preferences. So what do they like doing? What do they not like doing? And, and, you know, when we're putting people in sales roles, we, we put people who have the inherent preferences that suit an SDR role in an SDR role. And if they have more of a customer success kind of inherent preferences, we'll put them in that kind of role because they're going to be happier there. So that's kind of the starting point is if, if we, if, if you take people who have, the DNA for that role, they're more likely to perform in that role. 
There is a really simple rule. Your strengths are your development areas. Your weaknesses right. are not. Putting me in a room and training me on Excel for two weeks will result in me still being shit at Excel. <laughs> well, ultimately, you don't like it. No. So, you know, now my view on this is maybe slightly different to yours, is that you can learn how to use Excel, but you're never going to love it. No. And you're not going to want to do it every day for the next 10 years. Ever. So, so well, exactly. So, so why would I put you in an Excel role? And that's kind of our philosophy when it comes to sales professionals. Is when I talk about creating career pathways, it's an education process because a lot of people don't even know what a sales career even is, what it looks like. So part of that process is actually educating people as to whether they really want to get into a sales role. Like, what is it? What are you going to be doing every day? Does that sound good? And then we, we, you know, we have a, a pretty rigorous assessment process using the software as part of it. So then we put these people in organizations, then we wrap ongoing training and development around them intensively for their first three months and then ongoing beyond that. One, to get them up to speed quickly, but two, to keep them developing and growing. And what we've seen has been really was been really amazing, actually. And it's actually how the training part of our business started is because these reps that we we're putting in these organizations were significantly outperforming the people who were already in the company. You know, there's this one kid who we placed at a company called EasyVet called Chad. He came in there and in three months did more than his two counterparts had done, who he was sitting next to, had done in five and six months, respectively. He did it in three, in his first three. And oh, he still has the Beginner's luck. It's, it's, you know, you, you, I bet they were vying to try and take his accounts and steal his territory as well. Do you know what's funny? You know, do you know what's funny? You could pass up as beginner's luck. Then we just placed another guy in there recently. He's been there two and a half months. And he's just beaten Chad's record. Okay. Now, this, this is the thing, right? And, and, and this is how the training side of her business started because we had, we had lots of examples like this where companies would say to us, well, actually, can you, can you put Aaron on the training as well, please? Because um, we want him, to, you know, we want him to be performing like Chad. But you know, so so really, lifelong education leads yeah. to and, and and support because it's not just the education; it's actually the supportive environment. That's what leads to better success. This is one of the really interesting things because you almost never get pushback when you say coaching you know, enhances performance, and what you do get push pushback on is finding the time. And I think part of the problem is that most traditional coaching, if you want to call it that, is based on the GROW model, which is fantastic if you can make the time for it. And for the 1% executive, you know, executives who get executive coaching, it's fabulous. It's not very practical for trying to coach on the job in the moment. Do you need something more like a, an operational coaching style of management, which is very much inquiry-led. And managers need to learn how to ask questions in the moment on the job and coach what they see. And then they need to be able to create scenarios where those their people can practice those moments in somewhere uh, you know, safe environment, out of the glare of the spotlight, so that they can then master those skills. Now, that's really powerful. And when you start doing that, you start seeing entire teams improve. And the manager is the fundamental part on that. So I've done a lot of executive coaching. It's actually where I started, funnily enough. I sort of did it backwards, but I, that's where I started was coaching founders of tech companies and, and senior sales leaders on how they can get the most, you know, how can they set up sales teams you know, for scale, get the most out of their sales teams, how they can become coaches to their sales teams. And organizations are usually quite happy to invest in that kind of coaching for senior, senior folk. But arguably, the youngsters, the people coming in at the SDR level, uh, right at the start of their sales careers, even, even up into, into intermediate, you actually get more bang for your buck yeah. if you invest, not, not necessarily the same amount, but, a, you know, but invest in coaching for them. So you know, when, we, when we set up a Prento, our kind of part of it is, how do we take this idea of like executive coaching and make it scalable and affordable enough where an organization can justify it on more junior junior sales reps because you're absolutely right and and the problem is most leaders don't actually know how to coach their sales teams or they don't have the time because they're caught up in admin and doing a million other things that maybe you could question they should or shouldn't be doing but that's the reality at the moment now that begs the question okay why is that the reality but that's probably another can of worms we can open up open up in a moment because of that, that's kind of where we've, we, that's why we've existed 
is because organizations don't have the time, expertise, or know-how as to how to coach their teams a lot of the time. I, um, I think it's down to ignorance, and then they blame the time. They don't know how to, and then they say that they're too busy. Because be. more often than not, they're too busy because they're not coaching. Um, that's the irony. I massively agree with you there. <laughs> um, because like I said, I've done quite a lot of executive coaching and I've coached a lot of sales leaders on exactly that. And, and the funny thing is, is when they make more time for coaching, they actually free up hours in their day because they're not dealing with people asking them the same inane questions they've been asking for the last six months. Right. I'll, I'll give you the evidence on this as well. One of, one of the companies I'm CRO for, a company called Notion, provides a means to transform the behavior of hundreds or thousands of middle managers simultaneously to move them from command and control to an inquiry-led operational coaching management style. And the London School of Economics is conducting a study on this. The interim report that's been produced in conjunction with the BEIS, which is the Business Enterprise Industry and Strategy Department of the UK government that sponsored this project, uh, it was 62 companies. The average ROI was 74x by changing the management style. Now, what was interesting was the speed with which they got ROI was typically within four weeks across the board. And the, one of the biggest areas of return on investment was the 20% the day a week that managers on average recovered a full day every week. That's 48 days a year. That's two and a quarter months of management time that can now be redeployed on higher value management activity. Instead of supervising and doing, they now have time to spend it on leadership, on strategy, on planning, on ride-alongs, on coaching, heaven forbid, on working on pipeline, rehearsal, debriefing, training, developing themselves. That's two and a half months that they can spend every year on that. Now, imagine the impact if you couple that or you, you lead with that and then you implement training with coaching and reinforcement. That's power. It is. And, and it's awesome to hear that data, actually, because I've seen it through the work I've done, but it's great to see actual, you know, actual data reporting that a whole day a week. That that's great. That's actually mind blowing when you think about it. Like, you know, that's a it's eight true. hours. Imagine what you could do with an additional eight hours every week as a sales leader. So well, imagine you had um, twenty percent more managers, all of whom were competent. Oh that's exactly. what you're getting. Exactly. Some of the value in having that time as a leader is so you can actually work on yourself because that's the other thing, right? Is a lot of sales leaders don't have enough time. Well, they say they don't, you know. They don't make enough. They time. don't feel like they have enough time for themselves. But but you're right, they don't make it. And one thing I've been really big on when I've whenever I've coached sales leaders is you need to book in some time for yourself a week where you don't take calls, where you don't, you know, and it could only be 10 minutes a day or 20 minutes a day, but you need that time so you can actually think a bit bigger picture. You can think about the future and not just be reactive all the time. And I actually think that's the same, whether you're a leader, business owner, whatever. It was advice I was given not, not, not too long ago. Uh, and my business partner and I implemented it where we have 20 minutes a day where we don't talk about anything that's happening right now. And we talk about the future and we talk about, you know, blue sky thinking, blue sky thinking time. We implemented that in, I think it was May 2021. And it's incredible the progress we made. And it's that incremental bit better, getting a bit clearer, com you know, compounding interest that we were talking about before we started recording. It's amazing what that does. And it really is. It's 20 minutes a day. So what impact can you point to in your business from 20 minutes a day of the founder's getting their heads together and thinking big picture and you know, the meta level? Well, the business has changed significantly from when we launched. Our vision has changed. And I think it's actually probably the vision is actually the biggest thing that's changed is we got clearer on that vision. I think when we first started, 
So my business partner, Scott, he has a recruitment background, building, running recruit, large recruitment sales teams, and then having his own recruitment company with, with a number of business partners. And then I have more of a advisory and sales coaching background. And we sort of joined forces and thought, hey, you know, you're good at that. I'm good at that. Let's bring that together and see what happens. But that was probably that, about the much thinking we did an at the time. intersectional moment, which we will touch on in a moment. And, and, and it was and it, and it was great. And we had customers and it was all, all going well. But we, we never had this clarity of vision. And that's when we got this advice from one of our advisors just about a year ago. And, you know, then we suddenly got clear about actually, what are we all about? Like, what are we trying to actually achieve here? And then we sort of got clearer as, okay, we're trying to professionalize selling. We want to create pathways into the profession and we want to professionalize it ultimately so that buying experiences are better. And then when we got that clarity, then suddenly, because we knew where we were going, all these other opportunities just started to present themselves and almost you attract them. It's really weird. It's hard to describe, but they sort of you attract them to you. So now we're, you know, developing a professional certification in New Zealand. So it's going to be New Zealand's first qualification for selling and, you know, other, other, other similar opportunities, partnership opportunities like that. And all of that. Are you looking to partner with universities? Correct. So we've started, we've got one in New Zealand where we're, we're literally rebuilding the curriculum at the moment. But long term, yes, is the short answer. It, is we, we think that this is something that should be everywhere. Excellent. Okay. Well, we, we should definitely uh, have a chat about that offline because um, there's some really interesting things that I'm involved in there as well. Okay. So a great book that I know you'll appreciate. It's called uh, The Road Less Stupid by Keith Cunningham. And one like of the his, title already. I know, you can't not read it after that title. And uh, at the end of every chapter, there are some really awkward, wonderfully uncomfortable questions. But his advice is 45 minutes a week, you, a legal pad, a pen, and no interruptions. And you start out with one question. And all you do is you write to answer that question. And you end up with a, a flurry of other questions. That's the real output. It's not the answers. It's better questions. And the re- one of the real reasons why I love what uh, you're talking about with you and Scott working together like this is that um, it's that synthesis that's really powerful. You get far, far better outcomes when you have many eyes looking at the same problem with different perspectives. You with your coaching and advisory background, Scott with his recruitment background, um, that's two different perspectives. But it starts getting really, really interesting when uh, you start looking at your wider ecosystem and you start bringing in people who might be specialists in top of the funnel or in marketing or in communications or whatever. And you start all of you looking at the customer's problem together. Now that starts to get some really exciting possibilities. So I'm curious, what are you, uh, are you already doing this or is this something on your radar? Uh, Short answer is yes, we're already doing that. So massively agree with you. So that's how we started, right? It's like uh, two guys came together. We met during the very first COVID lockdown and we hashed out a business over Zoom without ever meeting each other. That's sort of <laughs> the genesis of how it, how it all kicked off. <laughs> and going, sorry, this is making my day. <laughs> it, it was amusing. By the time we met, we'd actually, you know, we'd got the shareholding agreement drafted, you know, it was, it was one of those kind of situations. But, you know, then since then it's, we've really, ha- we, we went and spoke to, God, countless sales leaders. We spoke to VCs. We spoke to we spoke to the you know you mentioned the ecosystem. That's what we, that's who we spoke to. Universities, government, everyone. Predominantly in New Zealand to start with, and then we started talking to Australia, and then the US and the UK as well. And trying to paint a picture of what's the problem, what are the underlying problems that we're seeing in in the space, and you know from there our solution evolved because our initial idea was X. But then after actually understanding the problems better, it actually changes your solution. And then you're not even selling. Like, I don't even feel like we sell that much, which is the funny thing is we've, <laughs> because the problem, especially right now in, in the recruitment side of what we do, because the problem is so severe, we never sell. We have people saying, hey, it's almost order taking. Yeah. And I think that was because we were able to articulate the problem so well. Because we've right. done the homework. And, and, and this is the key. And Einstein said it better than either of us, which is given an hour to solve a problem, I'll take 95% of the time to understand the problem and only 5% to under, uh, develop the solution. 
that's paraphrasing, but it's bloody good advice because the more eyes you have on the problem and the more time you spend on understanding the problem, the more elegant and sustainable the solution because you have different perspectives on it. Now, I have uh, one of the big bugbears that I have at the moment is the number of vendors and the amount of money being thrown at symptoms with one or two dimensional solutions that are trying to tackle multifaceted, interdependent, complex, intertwined, multiple stakeholder, uh, rules changing uh, type of problems, because these are messy, gnarly, perennial, wicked problems, and they cannot be solved by addressing them with the, from the same perspective that created them. And the things no. that created them was this shallow thinking this lazy uh, leadership and management and uh, these blind spots because they are not spending enough time thinking about their own problem, which is why is it that we're not selling? Well, the reason you're not selling is because you're not timely, you're not relevant, and you're not delivering value to your customers because you're being a bunch of selfish assholes. That's the truth. Am I being unfair? Perhaps, but, <laughs> but also in some, in some ways, yes, in some ways, no. And it depends what company and what sales professionals you talk about. Well, actually, I would say I agree with you for salespeople, but there are sales professionals out there who don't act like that. Uh, uh, I think 100%. that's the difference. But for in general terms, yeah, you, you make a good point. The buying experience is not pleasant Sorry. a lot of the time. And, I've, and I know that as having seen so many organizations, how they structured their sales process initially, you know, or, or lack thereof. But then also when I've been buying software for, for my businesses, you know, I'm going through and I'm not, I won't name names, but I'm going through a few software purchases at the moment that are, that are fundamental to how we run our business going forward. And some of them are painstaking. I'm three hours in and I haven't even spoken to a salesperson yet, you know, and I haven't even seen the, the product and I've been through multiple useless discovery call after discovery call that was asking the same questions as the first one. And then the sales reps decide to resign and we've got to start all over again. And, oh, and wow. it's just, it shouldn't be that hard and it shouldn't, you know, it, and it doesn't have to be, you know, it really doesn't have to be. There is a better way. I'm minded of uh, an old cartoon of Christopher Robin walking down the stairs carrying Winnie the Pooh behind him by one arm, dragging him, or by one leg, dragging him, banging his head as he went bumpity, bumpity, bump down the stairs. And that's exactly what it's like. It's, it feels so painful to buy nowadays from so many organizations because qualification is selfish. Bant is total bollocks. It's set up so that selfish sellers can selfishly qualify to see whether or not someone is fit to transact with them. As a buyer, I can tell you now, if someone approaches me like that, I have little or no incentive to spend my money with them. I'm going to challenge you on that. I know the sentiment. I know where you're coming from. I don't think the problem's the framework. I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with Bant or Rampact or Medic or any of the frameworks. I don't think that's the problem. It's how they're applied is the problem. Mm -hmm. Most people don't apply the they apply it from a me perspective hmm. not a you perspective and that's the actual problem that's fair conversational guidelines templates scripts whatever we want to call them can be massively helpful frameworks massively massively helpful but they have to be applied in the right way and it's the application that's usually where people go wrong how you say that's right you know like i, I could bent i could bent you in a very customer-centric way and you don't feel like you've been just taken through a list of seller-centric questions. You can do it in a very conversational, natural way where you feel like you might have learned something about yourself. And, you know, like that's the difference. And th there, therein lies the issue because if you're not delivering value to the customer, why would they invite you back? Now, on average, seven out of eight first meetings do not result in a second. Now, that is terrifying because you've just spent thousands of dials, thousands of emails, thousands of bits of content to get to that one point, and you blow it seven out of eight times. 
we need to start asking much better questions in management and leadership, which is how can we actually achieve the outcome and still deliver great service and outcomes for the customer? The, the problem is that it's so selfishly orientated and it's one-sided and that's where it goes horribly wrong. And that's where the technique is used as a, uh, a weapon and uh, where you know, frameworks like Bant and Medic and so on uh, are used to selfishly qualify. The customer needs to feel that that interaction is valuable to them first and foremost, or they are not going to invite you back. They might uh. ask you for more information, they're not going to buy from you because you have not built any intimacy, you haven't built any credibility, and you haven't built any trust. And your orientation is selfish. Yeah, that's right. It's it's the selfish orientation. I think is the one of the bigger biggest problems in the sales experience, the buying, buying, selling experience. But actually, the framework can be very useful. I'll give you an example. So, like, I I, I was selling not too long ago to a, to a large corporate, large global corporate. They wanted some advisory and leadership coaching for their corporate team. And they invited me into a closed RFP with two large global management consultancies and a large Kiwi consulting firm. And I rock up with a backpack on thinking, what the hell am I doing there? And I actually said that to them. I said, what am I doing here? Like, are you sure you want me in this process? Like you do realize it's just me. But anyway, fast forward a bit. And I just asked that a lot of questions. That's all I did was I, I, I probably spoke for 30% of every interaction we had. And then when it came down to it, they decided to go with me. And I said, well, what made you choose me? And they said, well, you were the only one who asked us what our budget was, the only one who understood our problem. And we actually don't care that you haven't got a team of consultants because we actually never met any of the consultants from the other organizations. They never brought them. We'd rather work with you. And I kept digging and I found out the real reasons. And, and one of the organizations who I was competing against had gone in and priced it four times the budget. And the other two organizations had priced at 50% of the budget. I priced 120% and then procurement knocked me down to 100%. And it was just one of these, it was just one of these realized, it was like one of those moments where you're like, ah, okay, so you, you can do this right. Their head of corporate said to me, he's like, I wish, I want my salespeople to sell like that. And that was an example of just how being like genuinely interested in your customer's world, in their problems, in, in, and not just the one person who brought me into the conversation, but every single stakeholder getting to know, okay, you know, and these are the questions people don't ask is how does how this impact you, you personally? How many people did you cover? There were six, I believe, from four initially and then another two. So six, six, okay. yeah. And so then, the, and then the average... since then another three before, uh, you know, in, in subsequent pieces of the work. Okay, so the the average rep will probably speak to between one and two people mm. in a company of over a thousand. I think it's about one point six five, according to the SRC study. And interestingly enough, the five hundred to a thousand mark, they speak to one point nine. So they speak to more in the mid market than they do in the enterprise space. And without that, because it's easier, it, because it's easier and it's lazier. And what you just defined there was how you built trust, because you are credible which means that you did what you said you were going to do. You were reliable. You did what you said, when you said you were going to do it, in the manner you said you would, and to the budget. And, and the other thing, actually, that's really important that I did, that I learned from a guy called Todd Capone, who wrote an amazing book called The Transparency Sale. I, I love Todd. Mad, mad props to Todd. And I owned my flaws or, you know, like I didn't try and be something I wasn't, you know, I came in, I was like, look, it's just me, yep. you know? And, and, and I even said to them at the time, I'd never worked with a corporate before. And I said, look, I've never worked with a corporate before. My expertise has been in startups yep. in the kind of zero to 10 million space. So I'll put that on the table first. And that kind of pure sheer transparency if more salespeople, sales professionals sold in that way, one, it makes selling so much easier, but two, it means the actual delivery portion of things is so much easier too, because no one's surprised. There's no horrible surprise later on. Let me ask you this. How close do you feel to those customers? Well, I've worked with them and I still do. Very, like in all honesty, very close. So if, would you describe it as intimacy? There's a level of intimacy there, professional intimacy, yeah. Okay. So the formula for trust, the trust equation is trust equals credibility 
plus reliability, plus intimacy over self-orientation. You just mm -hmm. defined in your behavior exactly why they trusted you. And Trust-Based Selling is another fantastic book by Charles H. Green, a must-read for any salesperson, because it's all about how do you establish and maintain trust. And whilst people don't have to like you, they do have to believe that you, they have, you have their back. And That's right. And in corporate, they are not going to make a decision on their own. Emotion drives it, but ultimately there are checks and balances and processes to protect the organization from people like us. And our job is to help fit within their buying process and meet them where they are, not try and squeeze them into our selling system. Just That's because right. they, you know, they're not at the budget step yet uh, doesn't mean that we have to then push them there. We have to make sure that we bring them along. We have to draw them to us. Uh, not and, force them. And there's a few things I don't, you know, that I coach hundreds and hundreds of reps now. And there's a few things I don't see enough of. It's a really important distinction is there's always multiple cells within, especially a complex sale. There's multiple cells. You've Absolutely. got the, the business cell, but then you've also got the individual stakeholders you're, you're selling to as well. And questions that I think are really powerful is just how does this impact you personally? That, to me, is a very obvious question that we should be asking in a sale, is how is this going to impact? You know, How is whatever's going on right now impacting you personally? And how would things be different? Or how would you like things to be different? When you've earned the right, another great question is, what do you fear? It's a perfectly legitimate and reasonable question because it's real for them. If you don't understand what, what they fear, what their hopes are, what their aspirations are, you've got no business selling to them. Exactly. And then just on questioning, I think sometimes people have a fear of being nosy or prying, or they have a fear that they, they don't ask questions because they don't think they're going to get an answer. They don't think they'll get an honest answer. And I think that's one of these things that salespeople really need to reorientate themselves on, that it's how you ask the question. And you need to have your, your own brain and mindset right if you want people to answer you when you ask them a question. Like if I ask a question to someone, I genuinely conf am confident that I'm going to get an answer because I've, you know, and, and, and that takes a bit of time maybe to get to that level of confidence where you can ask anyone a question and kind of most of the time get the answer or get, or get a relatively honest answer. But it is a mindset shift that I think sales, salespeople or anyone selling needs to, needs well, to make. One of the things that I really do feel grateful for for my uh, last 16 years with Sandler was uh, understanding TA, transactional analysis, and right. the, the concept of having adult-to-adult -adult interactions at the beginning and end, uh, which, again, I think Sandler was genius at bringing this in. However, one thing I do disagree with him slightly is that you should leave your child in the car. Now, I think, actually, if you listen to some of the other Sandler rules, the child needs to be in the sale. It's the, the natural child who is curious, autonomous in their learning. What do, you think Sandler meant when, what do you think he meant when he said, leave the child in the car? When you turn up, you need to make sure that you're operating from the nurturing parent and the adult. That's Sandler's premise. However... I find the natural child is where my best questions come from because the natural child is curious, autonomous, and self-directed in their learning. Um, there is a sense of fun, so they do need to be under adult supervision because you can ask one too many questions or you can just say something that will get you in trouble. So it needs to be under that control. However, I think what he was really talking about is do the rehearsal. Do the preparation, do the planning so you've thought through what your customer, the journey they've gone through, where they are at the moment, where they're trying to get to, and think about your questions in advance and rehearse them, practice them. Think about how the customer is likely to respond, what your next response will be, so that you've lived it all beforehand, so that you can stay fully present when you're in front of the customer. And then you can let your natural child go wild because all of a sudden, 
you've done all the preparations. You've got all the fundamental questions lined up. But now what you're doing is you're feeding off the prospect's responses. And that's a really exciting place to have the child involved because all of a sudden they start asking the most basic, simple questions that you probably overlooked because you made it too complicated. And that's the beauty of having the child there. Yeah, I like that. It's a nice analogy, actually. If you prepare enough, then you can let your let the child, you know, let your inner child actually kind of absolutely run run a bit freer. How much preparation do you think? It's an interesting one. This idea of preparation, I think, you know, it's this idea you 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 can never prepare too much. But there's also a time value of money element to how much preparation you can realistically realistically do. What does good preparation well, look like for you? To me, if you're working on enterprise deals, I would suggest for every hour you're in front of the prospect, at least three hours of prep. Yep. And there's a good reason for this. That three hours of prep is going to save you about 500 hours of prospecting to get to that point. Yeah. Do the three hours of fucking prep. I mean, seriously, rehearse, plan, do dress rehearsals, have a red team meeting, especially for any key ones where everyone else picks apart your deal and nothing should be as hard as that red team uh, meeting. Anything in front of the customer, walk in the park by comparison. And when I've done this with clients, they've literally walked in and word for word, an entire hour and a half has gone exactly as we've rehearsed. Now, we've done a lot more rehearsal than the hour and a half. So we've got, you know, they've, they've lived it all, but word for word. And the beauty is everything is then predictable. And the nuance then came because they were able to just relax into the sale. They had no agenda. They weren't there trying to pressure people. They were simply there trying to get answers to these questions, which are fundamental to the customer's outcome. And that's really powerful. Yeah, look, I think that's a nice kind of rule of thumb. You know, if you've got an hour in front of the prospect, three hours of prep for for a complex deal, bigger deal, yeah, yeah, I I, I tend to agree with you there. What about in the but, kind of smaller end of town, though? Like, you know, in the more 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 transactional SME, you know, SME environment. Uh, again, I, what I would still do is I'd still do a lot of research, but I would research around the subject. Uh, most mm-hmm. salespeople focus just on exclusively trying to transact and make a deal happen. Well, customers don't buy in isolation. They buy as part of a journey, and that journey is multifaceted. Well, let me understand how they got here. What is it that caused them to think about making a change now? What is going to cause them to actually make that change? Because the magnetism of the status quo is massive. So how do I find 12x the value as table stakes just to start? Because if I can't find that, they're not going to change because 60% of the time you lose to the status quo. Well, it's like you were saying earlier about building trust and credibility and you need to be an expert. And, you know, I think sometimes get a bit scared of that word expert. Like how, how can I know more and how can I be the expert when I'm speaking to the CEO of a big company, you know, and I'm a 20 year old kid and he's, he's in his sixties and has more experience. But I think people think about it wrong. It's not that you need to be an expert in everything. All you need to be an expert in is your vertical, your field, you know, your area. And I think that's, you know, what you've just said there is good advice, especially for those selling more transactional type selling is you probably won't be able to do three hours of research on every single customer, but learn your market, like learn what's going on in that space and under, and stay current and, and keep it. it I can't, <laughs> so I'm like, get, get passionate about this, but ongoing lifelong education is the key, key to success in professional selling. Like that is the key. It, it, it's not, I'm going to do a training course and, and now I'm a seller. It's ongoing. It's lifelong. You can always improve little bit by bit. And, you know, whether that's, you know, whether you're improving your soft skills, whether you're improving your market understanding, you know, whether you're um, practicing, you should always, always make sure you have the time to do that, whether your company's paying for it or not. Because if they're not paying for it, plenty of books out there, podcasts, you know, read, practice with your colleagues. Like there's always something you can be doing. And if they're not paying for it, you will. Um, well, that's the other thing, Yeah. <laughs> Don't think that the company owes you training. If they don't train you, then more fool them um, because you are a personal services corporation selling your expertise for money. What you are, however, 
tasked to do is help customers solve their problems. And if you get smart at doing this and you're always looking at the bigger picture, then as a seller into the SME, you can still bring value even when you have nothing to sell by referring stuff in. You can uh, act as an introducer. You can make money off that if you want to. Personally, I don't. Um, because I believe that uh, the moment I introduce a financial reward for me, that taints the introduction. I'm making the introduction because it's the right thing to do. Mm. And it comes back because my ecosystem feeds my pipeline. So uh, there is reciprocity. I I have not done a single cold call since 2004. I've not Mm. needed to because I built a referral partnership network. I built strategic alliances, and now I'm building ecosystems. Yeah, it's it's really... Interesting you said that because when I first decided to go out and be self-employed, I did a lot of that cold calling outreach to get my early customers. But then all throughout, I was very focused, just like you said, on building that ecosystem, building the kind of, and not, not, not even necessarily formal partnerships, but building, you know, like understanding who else right. is in the space alliances that's a better word because then you know and I've, I've you know I'm a bit younger than you and I haven't been going quite as long but you know two and a half years on and and almost everything is now inbound in this country anyway in New Zealand it's it's almost all inbound but a lot of people don't but but it takes a lot of hard work it takes about 12 months for that yeah. kind of work you know for 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 that machine to start working and um, and it takes a lot of effort, continual effort to keep it working long term as well. And so, again, when you are creating that um, machine, that machine has to deliver value to your audience. So you always have to stay relevant. You've got to be thinking as your customer, as your audience, as your partners. And this, again, is really interesting because what, what I'm seeing is a shift uh, in what top salespeople, what we should be looking for in top salespeople, which is our people who play nicely with others. They're not low rules. They are people who are fantastic at generating discretionary effort internally and externally. They, they have a, a low self-orientation. Their emphasis is on being long-term selfish. So they, they understand that for now, their obsession is the customer, getting the customers the outcome that they want, helping them achieve their goals. And it doesn't mean that they're not self-orientated, but their self-orientation is low. It comes later because they understand that in order to get their needs met, to quote Zig Ziglar, you have to help other people get their needs met first. I love the idea of long-term selfish. I have two examples of how that's played out. My two biggest ever individual sales deals that I I did uh, in my companies came from exactly what you just described. One was I helped uh, and I just gave some advice. I had, a, I had a quick chat, virtual coffee, and then I had a follow-up coffee with the founder and head editor of a um, business publication here in New Zealand. And I just gave him some advice because yeah, um, he was looking to sell into more corporates. And as I suppose a thank you for that, he then gave me a column. In, that's cool. In, that's uh, really cool. Really cool. And that's how I won my largest ever corporate client. And that paid for my house or the deposit on my house anyway. And then the second one was a conversation I had with a guy I met on LinkedIn. We had a really nice, just like value add conversation, got to know him. And then about three months later, without, I didn't even realize he'd recommended me to a government agency here in New Zealand that does a lot of work in the um, tech and startup ecosystem. And he put me forward to a guy he knew there who was looking for experts in, in my field. And that was just from one 30 minute conversation where I didn't try and sell all because I, I quickly established this guy was never going to be a customer, but we just had a really good conversation and, and he remembered it and then decided to refer me into something. And, and that's, I think, long-term selfish right there. Again, being ready to tell people that you're the wrong person to help them is really powerful. I I remember I did this once and I got 12 referrals off the back of it. And they were really heartfelt referrals because he made the effort to introduce me to each one personally. Now, you don't get that by trying to transact with people. You don't get that by pushing. And we have to rethink because um, if you look at the 
what's coming, we are now headed for the toughest trading conditions that any of us are likely to face in our working lives. And they're going to persist for quite some time. So we have a choice. Either we can double down on stupid and do what we've always done, which at the moment is 97 to 99% ineffective. Or we can start thinking there are better ways and asking questions around how do we uh, generate business in ways that give us reach and clout that we couldn't possibly have had on our own? How, how do we as small businesses club together and work in tandem with one another in order to help our customers uh, achieve outcomes that they possibly couldn't if they were going to corporates? Because corporates' are, uh, thinking is limited, in my experience, because they've got products to sell. I remember last year I was working with a cyber client and one of our big partners actually worked against us on several deals because of their commission plan. So they killed four deals. We wasted two and a half million dollars worth of opportunities partnering with these people. They're not good partners. And it's wrong because we were an SME and we could have helped these customers, but instead they selfishly tried to peddle in their stuff and they've actually alienated two major investment banks. It's insane. Poor behavior. Yeah. You know that. It's like, Selfish. You know, and it's really what we've spoken about this whole time. It's, it's, it's that seller centric behavior. Yeah. It's but, got to but not, not, not in the, you know, not in a good way at all. Uh, Alex, this has been really, really interesting, and I'd love to have you back. Unfortunately, we've hit the top of the hour. <laughs> Tell me this. What's your best mistake ever, the one that you learned the most from? Oh, there's been so many. I'm always making mistakes. One of the best ones I made young was chasing money. Early on in my career, I just that's all I cared about was just earn lots, chase money. And it was a massive mistake. And I took jobs I shouldn't have as a result of that. And, and anyway, there's a long story there and I won't go into it. But I did learn quickly. And if I had it all to do again, the thing I'd really focus on is learning. Like just learn as much as possible. Don't cash your chips in too soon. Just focus on the learning and the experience and getting better and better and better because that hasn't exponentially greater yeah. impact on your bank account than anything ever will if that's what motivates you but now it's now that doesn't actually motivate me now it's it's more around actually impact the mission you know it's like what's that sorry the mission the mission exactly that's now what it's all about is the mission so yeah that's probably the biggest mistake i made early but i'm glad i made it when i was young and i you know blew most of it because i was a dumb kid i blew on silly cars and you know <laughs> other things um but yeah, <laughs> that was probably the biggest mistake. Excellent. Okay. What would you recommend people read, watch, listen to at the moment? So the two books that have probably had the most impact on my selling career, or my, my career in sales, I should say, was Todd Capone's The Transparency Sale, which I mentioned yeah. already. And this one, it's not strictly a sales book, but I love it, is uh, Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss, Voss with a V. Uh, some of the techniques and, and, and the emphasis on questioning and active listening in that book, I, I found very, very illuminating. Have you read Just Listen by Mark Goldston? I haven't, but you're the second person to recommend me it. Uh, it's the first book I always recommend, uh, right. along with Keith Cunningham, The Red Less Stupid, and Essentialism by Greg McEwen. Right. Very okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna get you to send me those after this because I haven't got I haven't been noting them now. But yeah, those are those are probably the two I really really enjoy. And then look, other than that, I, I love history, so I read. You know, I'm currently reading um, the Gulag Archipelago, which is very very different to those, but yeah. also a you know a fascinating read for other reasons. Have you read Ray Dalio's latest book, Understand uh, Making Sense of the Changing World Order? That's no. really very interesting. So it builds on principles. But he's looking at uh, meta trends, the, me um, the macro trends and the micro trends and how they run in cycles. And when they run in parallel and they all come together, you're on the ascendant like China is at the moment. And when they're mm -hmm. all going in the opposite direction, like the US is, so the, the end of empire. And looking back at sort of, uh, the uh, history of China, the Dutch empire, 
the British Empire, the impact on the, uh, having the gilder, the pound, and now the dollar as the reserve currency, all this kind of stuff. Really very, very interesting stuff. That sounds sounds fascinating. Yeah, well worth a read. Alex, how can people get hold of you? Best place is LinkedIn, Alex McNaughton. You can find me on there. We've also got a podcast as well, which Marcus, you, you, you've, you've kindly appeared on, the Rev Up sales podcast. You can find it on all major podcast platforms. And yeah, other than that, LinkedIn or Aprinto.io is our company's website. Brilliant. Alex McNaughton, thank you. Thank you, Marcus. Thanks for having me. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful and insightful, then please like, comment, share, and tag someone who might find it useful too. And if you feel the urge, leave us an honest review, one, two, three, four, or five stars on Apple Podcasts. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.